0: You may be seated. Last week we completed uh, the book of Jonah. We had been walking through the book of Jonah there for several weeks, focusing on the theme of God's great mercy towards all mankind. And Jonah's rebellion, his initial rebellion, how last week we saw the whole picture come together, and that, that picture being that... Jonah, you love the least of my creation, and I love the greatest of my creation. Your love should be like my love. You should love your fellow man. And so we finished that look, and you notice, usually I, I might make mention of where we're headed in, in the next weeks. I didn't make mention of it last week because, to be honest with you, I, I, I was torn between what to do at this and after praying and talking with uh, Carlton and Aaron some, I, I, I believe I made the right decision to move forward in um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and following into v- chapter 9. So we're going to start in chapter 8. And I want to say some things up front, okay? Uh, first of all, um, uh, I, I, I'm not usually nervous uh, when I preach. I'm excited usually. You might get that. You might get... Uh, broken passionate you might get a lot of things just to be gut level with you i'm i'm scared i'm nervous very uncomfortable the reason is is because we're going to take up the topic of money uh, over the next few weeks for three and a half years this church has um, been serving the lord and you've done such a great job you've uh, served him in every way and you're A testimony of His grace in so many ways. Through your trials, you've always praised Him. And uh, through your hard times, you've refused to turn your back on Him. And He's refused and will continue. He will continue to be faithful. He's refused to turn His back on you, His children. I have always steered steered clear. I I sound like the Apostle Paul apologizing. (laughs) You know that I have always steered clear of this topic. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is that as a child, I was bludgeoned with this topic, um, with legalism and the requirements of the law and that you had to give to be right with God. You had to give 10%. Um, And some of you were raised that way. Um, And so I've kind of been leery of the subject. Secondly, in our day, so many charlatans abuse the pulpit, conniving and stealing and robbing not only the people they minister supposedly minister to, but robbing God Himself of His glory by panhandling the gospel, selling it, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians. We are not peddlers of the gospel. And so I've tried to refrain from that. We did take it up in home group and allowed you to discuss it as a people. And so we laid some groundwork for what I'll do in the next few weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And I want you to be at ease. You should never leave this place guilty. Only established, nurtured, loved, and feeling that God has given you so much. That's really how I want you to leave. If you notice when Steve was reading the Scripture, I want you to take notice as you look at the Scripture with me today that Paul's emphasis is not nickels and dimes. His emphasis is, our God is great in grace. God's great grace, if you were going to title this message series, and this message in particular, it is this, God's great grace equals great grace graciousness. That's the summation. If we were going to put a one little pithy statement to chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, that would be it. God has been great to us in His grace, and now His people overflow in graciousness towards Him and towards each other. The the letter, we call it books. It's really a letter. Um, The letter Paul's writing here was written in about 56 A.D., we we gather that he wrote it as he had left Ephesus and was continuing his journey back through the churches of Macedonia, probably somewhere around Troas. He wrote this letter, sent it by Titus' hand to the Corinthians. Okay, the reason he wrote the letter was this: there were several reasons, but there was one main reason. The false teachers, the false prophets, had come in among the people of Corinth and had begun to teach against Paul and his and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had even begun to personally attack and accuse him. Second Corinthians is a powerful letter. If you've never read it, I challenge you this week to read through the letter. It's not that long, and it's very heartfelt. It's one of the places in the Bible where we get to see the emotion and the love of an apostle for the church and for the people of the church. He pours himself out in this letter. Nine chapters are sent to commend the true gospel to the church, chapters 1 through 9, he, you'll find him saying statements like, Now you know when I was among you, I did this. You know that I have often said this in reference to the gospel. And, and in chapter 1 through 4, we see this great emphasis on, on the gospel itself, the fullest. The fullest understanding of the mystery of God in the gospel is in chapter 4 outside of the book of Hebrews. The mystery that has been revealed to the New Testament, the New Covenant people, that was in some ways hidden from the Old Covenant uh, saints. And so he expounds the mystery of how the, the world is in captive in blindness. Their eyes have been blinded by the God of this age. And yet God, who said, let there be light in darkness, has shown in your heart the gospel light. And now he's brought you to life. And what a great life it is. And he he expands that thought. In 2 Corinthians 5, we have a great teaching about the powerful new life of a convert. When you become a Christian, Paul says, you now have a new life. You are a new creation. The old has gone in verse 17. The new has come. In 21, he says, you are an ambassador. An ambassador, a messenger of God to the people. So his, it's a very passionate book. He's pleading with the Corinthians to believe the gospel and live the gospel. He also is encouraging those who have held to the gospel. When, when Paul left the elders in Ephesus, and I think it probably was a statement for the whole church of all time, he said, know this, that when I leave, many wolves will come among you. Not from outside. Where are they going to come from? From within the church. One of the places that they had come in and begun to teach differently was in Corinth. One of their main attacks against Paul was his lack of coming to the people. He had told them, I'm coming to you again. And he didn't do that because God, he says in chapter 1, prevented it. He rerouted Paul. Paul wanted to come back to Corinth, as he had said, but God didn't allow him to come back initially. And so they began to say, see, Paul? Paul, that guy y'all think so great, such a good teacher. Where is he at? He said he'd be here. Where is he? I thought he loved you. I thought he was coming. I thought he was a man of his word. He's not a man of his word. See how he lies to you? Now, if he'll lie to you about his travel schedule, what do you think he'll do about the gospel? Do you think he teaches a real gospel? Or do you think he might be telling you a little deceit there also? See, they began to sow discord among the church at Corinth. Paul viciously comes against these false prophets in the last part of the book. From chapter 10 to the end, he begins to turn the canon of the gospel on these charlatans, on these false prophets, and he pounds them with truth. I mean, it's a bludgeoning. <laughs> it is, it's a dressing down, as you would say in the army or in, in military talk. It's a dressing down. He's pulling rank. He's saying, you call yourself an apostle? You say you love these people? I tell you, you I don't need letters of recommendation. I don't need any letters from some other church to why I should be able to speak with authority to Corinth. I'll tell you what, what Corinth is. Corinth is an epistle. It's a letter of recommendation written on my heart. You think he didn't love the church? He says, you want to attack me because I'm late showing up to the church? I'll tell you. You bring little pieces of paper from other people to tell you how you have authority and your degrees and who you are. I don't bring anybody's papers. Jesus Christ has written the names of the people of the church of Corinth on my heart. They are my letter. They are my epistle. They're the proof of, my, of the gospel I've preached. Another area that obviously had become a problem and an area of contention was giving. Money had become an issue. Are you surprised by that? That when you get a group of humans together, money might become an issue. Doesn't it in marriage? In marriage, uh, not to discourage anybody in here who's single. In marriage, you'll have many long discussions over finances. And in churches, there are many long discussions, grievous fights and splits over possessions and over money. Now, why this occurred, we don't know. But I think there's a clue in the passage Steve read and we're going to look at and, 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 and I'm going to get there to the passage. But he says in that passage, remember, you committed a year ago to do this. I've, i get a hint there that the false teachers have come in and said, why, why are you all going to take up all this money? Do you not see times are hard here? You need that money. You need your possessions. A famine not only is in Jerusalem, a famine is here. And you're going to give all your money away to missions? You're going to give all your money away to another group of people? That's irresponsible. That's not saving enough. That's not caring for your own kids and your own people. You should care more about yourself. And Paul says, I want to remind you, you freely pledged a year ago to take this offering. And he sent this... Why do I say that? Because he sent this letter by the hand of his trusted Gentile servant, Titus. And Paul says, I sent Titus to you to warn you that I was coming. Warn you and applaud you. I want to thank you for your generosity and I want to thank you for your love for me. I want to warn you, if your boat's not straight when I get there, I'm going to straighten it out for you. I'm not coming with soft shoes to tiptoe around the issues. When I get to Corinth... I will oppose the false teachers to their face. They want to challenge me, I'll challenge them. It's a duel in a sense over the, over the integrity of the ministry. He challenges them to the corner, to the street corner. In an old-fashioned, what we might call in the West, a gentleman's agreement. You meet me outside at high noon and we'll take this up. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. You meet me at high noon and we'll take this matter of the gospel up. So, this is the setting of the letter. Right here in the middle, he deals with finances. We're going to deal with finances. Now, you might say, I know why he's preaching this message. We got that new land over there. and He needs some money for that building. You're right. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. But I don't need it. I think we need the opportunity to show the graciousness that God has so richly poured out on us as a people. I don't need anything. I won't receive, you know, let's say through this message and the messages to come, the Lord increases the giving of this church. You say, "What, what does he get out of it? I get the opportunity to say to God in prayer, you're a great God. And one of the examples of your greatness is the fact that your people are obedient and they're gracious and they give. I'm not going to get a raise out of it. I'm not going to buy a private jet. Don't laugh too hard. There's plenty of ministries out there doing that today. <clears throat> I'm not going to build a mansion. I'm not going to build a Taj Mahal of, uh, temple over there, and, and we're not going to do that. What I I hope comes from this message is that we say, the building, that's chunk change. That's nothing. Oh, we need a half million dollars to get the building up and running? That's the overflow. That's the excess. We want to send twice that much to the mission field over the next ten years. We want to plant two or three more churches. You think that one building's a problem? We plan to do much greater things than that building. If all the goal, understand this, if our goal becomes, let's see if we can build a building, we have failed. We have failed. But if the goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if the goal is missions in our community and outside of our community, and as a result, God would be so gracious as to build a facility for that to occur out of, to God be the glory, because it will be his work. And you will be able to die saying, I did not give for bricks and mortar. I gave and laid my treasure up in heaven, because where my heart is, is where my treasure is. And I treasure Christ more than anything. And this is small thing. This little building is a small thing compared to what we have done for the gospel. It's nothing. It's nothing. So I want to be up front with you. We do have a need, a great need. <clears throat> and by the world's standards, it might look foolish. But hopefully as we finish this, you'll see the only thing that's foolish is the doubt that God would be pleased to spread the gospel through his people and that God might gather together the resources to do that. Let's look at the text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8. My nervousness is calm a little now. I can see clearly. Paul, as only Paul can do, gives this great introduction to a topic. Now, I want to give you a skeleton here. We're going to give an outline, a kind of a, observation look at the first nine verses of this chapter chapter eight we're going to kind of just run i know your tendency is going to be let's stop camp out on this word right here we're going to get to that in the weeks to come what i hope to do is build this outline for you so we don't get bogged down in the little things but we see the big picture and then come back and hang meat on those bones okay 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We start out in verse 1. And Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Underline. If you underline your Bible, I'm going to tell you several things to underline. Grace of God. Underline that. That has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The first observation we make in this text is that the emphasis of the paragraph is on the grace of God. Do you see it? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. The grace of God. How has it been displayed? Through the churches of Macedonia. Further question. Question. Question we might ask of the text is how did they display the grace of God? Or how was that grace displayed through them? It was displayed because of their ability to give themselves to the Lord and all that they had was His. They gave a huge offering for the needs of the people of Jerusalem. So it's the grace of God. That's the first thing we want to see. The emphasis is on the grace of God. Second observation we make from the text is found in the first part of chapter 2. Grace does not remove affliction. It brings affliction. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, underline severe test of affliction, that's the second point here of what he's writing. We've, he's just said in verse 1, the grace of God has been displayed through the Macedonian churches. And what might you expect after that? Pie in the sky. They got it made. They're in the short roses, my daddy would say. They're in high cotton. It's easy work now. They've got the grace of God. What does he immediately say? For in their severe afflictions. (laughs) I mean, does that not make you just turn over in your mind and think, what's the reward of grace? Why do I believe in Christ? Why am I to treasure Him? Well, what's the purpose of this Christian life? I thought that if I got things right with God, it would get easy. And what you're telling me is, that's the beginning of trouble in this life. That's exactly what I'm saying. That when the grace of God comes into a believer's life, makes them a believer, and makes them treasure Christ above everything else, they are now set up for a life of affliction in this life. Don't be shocked by that. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you do what? Take up your cross and follow me. Not lay your cross down. No. Take it up. What do we do in the Christian life? When you become a Christian, you lay down your worldly burdens to Christ. And you take up His burden. Affliction. cross." Death, a new life. And so Paul says quickly in this here, he says, the grace of God is emphasized and it brings affliction. The word there in the original is, that's translated severe. It's, it's almost beyond measure. It's almost to the point where we would say we can't take it anymore. It has pushed us beyond our limits, God. We are hurting. Third observation we make. Grace brings about abundant joy throughout affliction. Their abundance of joy in in verse 2, part B. Their abundance of joy. Underline abundance of joy. Do you see how powerful a life, the Christian life really is as a testimony to the world? We've had tragedy in the United States many times. No no less this past week. Thirty-two families, thirty-two young lives, thirty-three counting the, the shooter. Thirty-three families, thirty-three young lives, gunned down, cold blooded murder. It's affliction. And so you say, Well, practically, what do we do as Christians? We face severe affliction with abundant joy. You want an example? I've referenced some months back now, earlier in the year, the Amish shooting. You remember that? The Amish children were gunned down, young children gunned down in cold blood by a maniacal man. The picture of what happened in this verse for the Macedonians And the lives they lived on a daily basis, not just on a rare occasion when persecution came, but their daily lives were so afflicted that they abounded with joy in this way that the Ingersoll mother of the two little girls who died sat holding the hand of the wife of that shooter so she might minister to her. And you say, that's not human. And I say, you're exactly right. That is the grace of our God. The great grace of God equals great graciousness. It brings it. It's not some crazy, half-cocked statement. Let the world come on, I can handle it. No. It's a broken response of God. I'm pushed beyond my limits. Oh, but your grace is so great. I can't take it anymore. Thank you for taking it for me. I don't want to pick up my cross, but I will because of you. I'm tired of the affliction and I'm tired of the persecution that comes with your name. But the taste of your grace is so sweet on my lips that I cannot stop. I will continue because you're so great he's going to talk about money but before he gets to money he wants to talk about a life and in conclusion we'll see when this is the life that is representative of the church when it's my life money is nothing He would say, we got to give money. That's all. This is the least of things. Given our possessions, that's nothing. We've given our lives. We've given our children. We've given our families. We've given it all that He would ask for our money. Somebody tell me where it gets hard. This is nothing. That was the Macedonians. The emphasis is the grace of God. That grace brought affliction, severe affliction, which caused them to abound in joy. And you say, that's not human, and I say, you're exactly right. That's superhuman. That's supernatural. That's the power of Jesus Christ in us. That's how we're a testimony to the world. for. Grace does not remove extreme poverty of the people. The Macedonians are in dire straits. Look there in verse 2. Their abundance of joy and their, not poverty, their utter lack of provision. They don't have anything. It's not that they don't have a retirement fund. It's not that they don't have a savings account. It's that that when they say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, they don't know where it's coming from. Extreme poverty. I want to make this statement to you. I have never seen this poverty ever in my life. I want to make one more shocking statement. It does not exist in the United States of America. It does not exist here. You find the bottom of our society, the family living on the government's provision and the soup bowl downtown, and they are wealthy compared to the Macedonians. They're wealthy. This is a poverty we cannot understand or comprehend. It didn't, the grace of God didn't remove their afflictions. It increased it. The grace of God didn't remove their poorness. We're going to see it increased it. It increased it. Not brought down. How many times have I said in my heart, oh God, if I got some left over? I'm going to give you the, what I owe you up front, the 10%. You know, because that's been my mentality my whole life. Legally, Lord, I know you'll flatten my tires and burn my house down if I don't give you 10%. That's what my preacher said. You know, that's what I heard on TV. So I'm going to give you that part. And then if I got any left over, when I'm done taking care of all what I need and want, then I'm going to give you some more. And Paul's going to tell us the Macedonians... They gave it all and then said, Lord, you'll have to provide for us. (laughs) Lord, we don't have anything here at our house, but those poor saints in Jerusalem, they need something. Jesus said, how do we feed 5,000 men? And the Macedonian boy, now he wasn't Macedonian. But he had the Macedonian spirit. He said, God, all I got is five loaves and two fish. My mama made it for me before I left this morning. But you can feed them all with it. I want you to have it. When we lay our lives down like a Macedonian, God's great grace will bring graciousness that will transform the world. It will transform the world. When will we have revival? Well, I might say one thing we need is Macedonian spirit. We need Macedonian spirit. We need reckless abandonment. We need to say a building. You've got to be kidding. I have a lack of faith over a building, and God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Fifthly, he says in this passage God does not remove affliction and poverty, it causes an overflow. That poverty causes an overflow of generosity. Look, in the, still in verse 2. Their extreme poverty have overflowed. Do you see the utter contradiction of what he's writing? <laughs> poverty that overflows. <laughs> has overflowed in a wealth of graciousness. The word in your Bible might be Generosity. This is graciousness. It's the definition of it. Great grace equals graciousness. Great graciousness on their part. The thing we see here in this text is far from discouraging the people, their poverty brought great joy which overflowed in graciousness, in giving. I've never seen this kind of poverty And sadly, in my own life, I've never displayed this generosity. I haven't. I like to fool myself to believe I have, but I have not. And I want to. I want to do this. But not for me. So that his grace might be emphasized. See, don't ever lose the picture as we move through this series of the opening phrase. I'm writing to you, brothers, that you might remember the grace of God displayed through the Macedonian churches. That's his whole emphasis. That's it through eight and nine. Remember the grace of God. When you see these great things, don't say, Boy, those people pop their suspenders, they got it going on. They got great grace and faith and giving. Boy, what an example. No. But that they might say, what a great God. That's all that could make people do this. uh, Sixth observation, in the beginning of verse 3. Grace inspires sacrificial giving of the believers. Three. For they gave according to their means... They gave according to their means. I like that statement. Don't you? You like that statement. You really do. Because that statement says, if I have it, I can give it. That's the statement I make when I say, I'm going to give to the church, then I'm going to do what I want to do, then I'm going to give to God some more if i got it left over. That's what that statement is, according to the means that God's given. But that's not where he stops. Continue in the verse. The very next phrase. They gave according to their means. As I can testify, this is the phrase I don't like. And beyond their needs, their means. They gave according to their means. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you something, Paul said. I was standing there when they gave beyond what they had. That's the part I'm not comfortable with. It's easy for me to give out of a savings account. It's hard for me to say, let's downsize. Let's downsize. Let's don't just live at our current status and give off of that. Let's downsize. And give up for His glory. Not for a building. But for the saints. For the gospel. For the kingdom. Great grace brings great graciousness. Which leads to sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. I don't want to preach every message in the sermon series in this message, so let's move on. Seven. God causes free will giving. This is giving because of personal desire. Look look there in verse 3. They gave beyond their means, second part of the verse, of their own free will. I hear a lot about freedom of the will people say I have free will I never hear them talk about it in this context oh God didn't choose me for salvation I chose him I got free will I make this statement to you the only place free will I found free will in the Bible, is giving. Free will isn't mentioned in salvation. It isn't mentioned in your life occupation. It isn't mentioned in any other context than free will offering. In the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if we want a free will theology, this is it. Give. Freely because you desire it. <clears throat> give freely because you desire to give. Not because you're compelled. The state church in Germany, John Piper studied there. He li- lived there for, year, for a few years while he was getting his doctorate. And he firsthand saw, and some of you traveled and seen this and maybe in the service lived this, where the state actually taxes the people for the church. They have a church taxes. When, when Piper was there, it was 8% of their income tax in the, in, the, in the nation went to the church. That sounds like a great system, doesn't it? That sounds tremendous. This is his testimony of what he observed in Germany. Empty pews. Dead souls. Wealthy churches. They bought their buildings. They upkept their buildings. They paid for their staff. And every Sunday in his in his little uh, town or whatever province of the Lutheran Church, there were ten thousand adults. He said, "When we went to church, there were less than sixty adults in the building. They had money, but they had no people and no love." For God's work, he he actually witnessed the, the bringing in of a new pastor, and the bishop came and to preach the commissioning service and saw how few people came. Piper said his message changed that morning, and it was this: You heard Christ say, "Leave the ninety-nine and go get the one that's lost." You've heard that parable. This guy said, in the Lutheran Church in Germany we need to leave the one and go get the 99. Since the Reformation, they had instituted a church tax and taken it up fervently and passionately, requiring it of the people. But it did not equal growth in the church. It equaled death in the church. And I want to propose to you this. You say, we have no tax like that. And I say to you, The 10% tithe principle as it is taught in the United States is a church tax. It will not work. It was never designed to work that way and it kills spiritually not bring life. I commit to you as a shepherd of God under shepherd of God I will never say you are required to give, I will only say, Thank you, God, for your grace. And it's displayed in the great graciousness of your people. God forbid we institute these things thinking we're doing him a favor. He did not design us as humans to give money off of legal requirement, He designed us to give out of our grace that we've been given. From Him. You say, well, I see 10% in the Old Testament. That's debatable. We're not going to get into that. I'll talk to you about that privately if you still have questions about that. We covered that in the home groups. But I do want to say this. They not only gave 10%, but they gave so much over that is what I see there. They gave over that. And Moses had to tell them, whoa, back. (laughs) That's enough. we got too much. We're getting wealthy here. It's way more than we actually need. The spirit of grace giving was in the Old Testament as strong as it is in the New Testament. It's the only giving you'll ever find in this scripture rightly understood and interpreted. Grace giving. Free will. They gave of their personal desire. Eight. Grace makes a beggar out of the new Christian. These are relatively new Christians behaving this way. Look with me at verse 4. For they, verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, for begging, underline that, us earnestly, underline it, for the favor, underline it, of taking part in the relief of the saints. Grace makes beggars out of new Christians. Don't get the wrong impression. David said, I've been old and I've been young. And I've yet to see God's children begging for bread. And I'm saying they're beggars. So what am I saying? Paul went to the churches in Macedonia. He saw how poor they were. Extreme poverty. And what he was greeted with when he went to the church was not, Brother Paul, could you get somebody to help us out? We're behind. We can't make our payments. And we ain't got any food. These poor, rag-wearing, lack-of-possession folk brought all they had to lay at his feet. They laid it down. Paul said, don't do it. Right here in the text. Look with me. It's the first time and maybe the last time you'll ever see. A pastor say, don't give me any money. And this, not as we expected. See, we weren't asking them for it. We didn't expect them to do it. They just did it. And they did more than that. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Imagine this. When grace takes grip of a man's heart, or a woman's heart, or a child's heart, they don't come saying, oh, woe is me. No matter how great the affliction, no matter how great their poorness is, no matter how hard life is, the effect of grace on a family, on a man, on a woman, on a child, is not, I've got to give. It's, oh, please let me give. No, 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 no. You ain't got anything anyway. There's other churches that have some money. Let them give. And the Macedonians are saying, don't take away our opportunity to share in the gift of God to the church of Jerusalem. Paul, don't rob us of our opportunity. Please let us give. What an attitude. Where did they learn it? Well, they learned it from Christ. Obviously that. More than that, they learned it from the church at Jerusalem. In Acts, the testimony of the early church is that they sold many of their possessions and laid them at the feet of the apostles so that those who had need would have their needs met. You remember that? And what is the fruit of that kind of giving in the generations to come? More gracious saints who would say, Jerusalem did it for us and now we will do it for them. Jerusalem was a bigger church. Jerusalem was a bigger town. Jerusalem had more believers, more apostles, You can make an argument for more spiritual gifts. They had everything. They were the wealthy church compared to the little outposts of Christianity in Macedonia. Where did the Macedonians get this thought? They learned it from their forefathers in the faith. And they said, we want to give. We want to give. But what did they give? Don't sleep about this point. Don't miss this one. This is the crux. This is the end. Grace calls on us to give ourselves to the Lord and as a result, give ourselves to other people. That's what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You say, Why do you take up a whole message series, preach on giving? Number one, because it's it's part of the life of a Christian. Let me be a little more controversial. Because I have great concern for myself and for the Church of America that I don't see this sacrificial spirit in my own life. I don't see it exhibited in the lives of the church around me. And this is the question that came to my mind this week as I outlined and study this text. Paul seems to be saying, this is not abnormal. This is normal. That you give yourself to the Lord first and then to everybody else. And where you don't see people giving of themselves to others in a sacrificial way. The immediate question is, have they given themselves to the Lord? You can't look at a billfold. That old saying about, look at a man's wallet and you'll see what he loves or whatever, that, that, that may be true physically speaking. But let me say this, so that you understand clearly what I'm trying to teach you and say from this text. I believe it is what this text says. It's all about the grace of God. Secondly, that grace has an impact that far outstretches our money, it's the fact that we give ourselves to the Lord fully. And because we are fully given to Him, and we treasure and love Him more than anything else, we give to each other. Do you see the difference in you're required to give X dollars or X percent And the godly system, the biblical system, the only system we see in the scripture which says, give yourself to God completely and then care for one another. We need examples, right? I haven't used any stories or anything like that. The best stories are there in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Our children know this. The first four commandments, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. The second six commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the whole law holds together on these two points. Love God with all of who you are. Give yourself to the Lord. That's what this says. The Macedonians gave themselves completely to the Lord and then they loved their neighbor as theirself. As a result of it was the normal outflow of it. Paul is so bold in 1 Timothy to boil it all down to this statement. The whole law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. What about God? Paul knows this. You cannot give to your neighbor as yourself unless you've given yourself to God. Why? Because it's supernatural. It's not human. It's abnormal to the world. But yet it is the standard for Christians. I close with this example. And I jumped down in the text to do this. I'm I'm going to come back and build sermons off of these texts. and We're going to walk through this methodically, but I'm trying to give you a great picture here of the grace of God. Look in verse 9. The beginning of the verses here and then really the end of this paragraph says in verse 9, Remember the first verse was, don't forget it, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Verse 9. What kind of grace does God have? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of God. How do we know it? That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, By his poverty, might be rich. That's it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God through the Macedonian churches. Well, what's the grace of God, Paul? Is it just about your money bag and what you need and a building? May it never be. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he made himself poor so that you might be rich in his poorness. This isn't the only time. Philippians chapter 2. Write that in the side column of your Bible. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Continuing through, actually just start in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 11. When did Jesus make himself poor? Because being equal with God, he did not count that as something to be held on tightly to. Grasped stingis, stingis, stingy, stingily. I'll get it out in a minute. He did not grasp it stingily. But he laid that down, that, that, that dwelling in the Shekinah glory, he laid it down and put himself in the person of a human. And he lived a poor life of a servant all the way to the poorest death, the most heinous of deaths, the cross. Why did he do it? So that God might in right time exalt his name above every name, So that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How does he start that paragraph? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. The Macedonians had the mind of Christ. Because they gave themselves to the Lord. And they gave themselves to one another. And I'm calling on you to join me. I'm not asking you to give. I'm calling on you. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging with you. Offer your life as a sacrifice to Him. And love one another. Treasure Him is what I'm saying. Above all things. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your heart is Him, if your heart is with Him, you will give sacrificially without even being asked. The response of the leadership will be, Whoa, 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 people. Y'all are all going to be living on the street. Slow down. It's too much. How do we get that response? Because His great grace leads to great graciousness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, which is given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord, who poured himself out even to death on a cross for us. And we now have no condemnation on our lives. We are free. We are free and we are alive by Him and Him alone. Father, forgive us. Forgive me because for these three years I've, I've run from a subject that is obviously dear to your heart. And that's my neglect to declare the whole counsel of God because of my personal fear. I'm sorry for that. But now is the opportunity that we might learn to lay our lives at your feet and love one another. Help us, God. Help us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the indwelling Spirit of Christ, to look at our surroundings and say, oh, that I might die so they can live. In the weeks to come, guard our minds from selfishness. Guard our minds from the thought of fear and for the thought of the future and for all of those things. Guard us from those things, God, and help us to focus only on your grace, only on your grace. Because that will cause us to give our whole life, not just the money. Lord Jesus, it is for your glory that the gospel is proclaimed and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because you are Lord of all. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I pray that God would continue to minister.